So we're going to do things slightly different today. I'm actually going to be working off just one verse, the first verse in the book of Matthew. And we're going to have quite a few scriptures that we're going to uh, merge into our discussion today. So we're going to kind of, we're going to have a thing where we combine my teaching and our scripture readings. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a concept here. On the one side you have the mitzvah. Everybody say mitzvah. That means a commandment. It's a, it's a physical action where God says, do this. And often it also embodies a principle. Then you also have the method. Everybody say method. So the mitzvah is what you do. It's the basic idea. The method is how you do it. And often God will give a mitzvah, a commandment, and how you work that out on a practical level will differ. Uh, maybe per family or for per, per congregation or even just different individuals. Uh, an example of that would be the readings. We usually have the bima, and we have seven readers that make aliyah to the bima, and they read. However, that is a method. The mitzvah is read the scriptures publicly, right? That's the mitzvah. And then a method is what I just said. Another method will be what we do today. So I put a lot of the scriptures that we're going to be going through on the PowerPoint so we can read along together so that we can see them, and it's going to be good. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the encounter with you that we are having. We love you, Father. Thank you for how your Holy Spirit is exalting Yeshua in our midst and exalting Yeshua over our city. And we pray that that would continue as we delve into your word today, Father. We pray that we would have an encounter with Yeshua. We pray that you would open our eyes to see your Son, Father, to see him for who he is in his glory, to see him as overwhelmingly worthy. And uh, we, we thank you for this. We love you, Yeshua, and we welcome you to bring your word to life for us this morning. Amen. Uh, so, um, again, if you have questions or comments, I'll go over some material, and then we can have some discussion at the end. So, if you were to go around PA, say, go to the mall, and just interview people, and say, what does the word Christ mean to you? I wonder what people would say. In our, in our culture, for a lot of people, Christ is just a cuss word that they say when they get really frustrated. Uh, for some people, they think, well, it's Jesus' last name. Like, uh, Herb's last name is Nemitz, and... Well, Jesus' last name was Christ. His dad was Joseph Christ, and Mary, his mom was Mary Christ. Um, some people would maybe think that. Um, some people would think, well, maybe it means some kind of spiritual guru or something. You know, kind of a, something like that. There, there are a lot of ideas out there about what the term Christ means. Uh, we, have, we have words in our English language that come from that word also. Like, if you build a new ship, and you're going to smash the bottle on the ship, and inaugurate the ship with a name, what is that ceremony called? It's called christening the ship um, in, in, some, in some high church denominations when you, when you baptize the baby as an infant. Um, you're christening the baby. Those are some words that come from, from this word Christ. I want to look at that today because this is, this, is the, this is the verse that we'll be looking at. It's the opening lines of the Gospel of Matthew, the writings of Yeshua's emissary, uh, and this is what it says. The record of the genealogy of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this is how the NASB reads this, reads this verse. They actually have the Messiah for the first couple times 
in, uh, in the book of Matthew. And then it goes to uh, the more popular uh, way of just using, using the word Christ instead of Messiah. So most Bibles will say the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. So the question is, what does the word Christ mean? What does it actually mean? What did it mean to Matthew? What did it mean to his audience? Because this is the word that is most often used in the New Testament to describe our Savior. And this is important for several reasons. I'll give you one of them. If you uh, want to give me the next verse here. In uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, we read this. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So according to this passage, this is actually a salvation issue. Understanding who Yeshua is as the Christ is a salvation issue. Denying him as the Christ allies you with the ultimate liar, Satan himself. You join the ranks. You become active in the spirit of the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist. So this, this is a big deal. Let me ask you, will there be people who, who called him Jesus Christ, who said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ in hell? Yes, there are, and yes, there will be. So it must not be enough just to use the formula, Jesus Christ or Jesus is the Christ. There must be more to it than that. So that's what I want to dig into with you. Um, I'm going to give you the etymology of this word first. Who knows what etymology is? Origin. That's right, it's the origins of a word. Where did this word come from? I'm a nerdy kind of person, so I love this kind of stuff. I love knowing where English words came from, how they came to be, what their stories are. Um, this word Christ came to us from the Greek word Christos. Everybody say Christos. And they chopped off the os on the end. I'm not sure why, but they did. So you have the word um, Christos. Actually, you can flip it to the next thing here for me. All right. So in Greek, you have Christos, or in English, Christ, and it means anointed. Everybody say anointed. Uh, the Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach. Everybody say Mashiach. Turn to your neighbor and say Mashiach and make sure you spit on them, kind of hork on them when you say the ha part, right? That's the idea behind Mashiach. And uh, in, in English, we often soften that to Messiah because we're kind of scared of horking on our neighbors, so we say Messiah. You know, something I'm not sure about is why we go from the Shah in Hebrew to the Sa in English. I mean, what's wrong with Shah? I really like the Shah sound. Why can't we say like Mashiach even instead of Messiah? It's kind of, it's, it kind of sounds lispy. It kind of sounds grating in English. So I encourage you, if you're, if you're into the Hebrew language, if you're learning the Hebrew titles of our Savior, learn not only to call him Messiah, learn to call him the Mashiach. It sounds cool. It really does. It sounds like Middle Eastern style cool. So that's, um, that's this word. And both of these mean anointed. So now you know what Christ means on a physical level. Um, this term, Christos, doesn't just turn up in the New Testament. The Old Testament was translated into Greek a couple hundred years before Yeshua came on the scene. It was called the Septuagint. Okay, So the Greek Bible is called the Septuagint. And did you know that Christos is all over the Greek Old Testament, all over the Septuagint also? Do you know what that means? It means if you were reading the Bible in Greek, 
you wouldn't just see Christ in the New Testament, you'd see Christ all over the Old Testament too. But when you read your Bible in English, they have Christ in the New Testament, and then they translate it into different words in the Old Testament. And you kind of miss the cohesiveness of the Word of God. You don't see Yeshua all over the place in the Hebrew Bible, like you would if you read, uh, let's say, in Greek. So I'm going to give you some of those passages in, uh, in, the, in the Tanakh in the Old Testament that point to Messiah. And these, these are really cool. I really dig this. He actually turned, the, the word Christos, like anointed, or the verb anointing, turns up over a hundred times in the Septuagint. Now, we're not going to go over all a hundred. Don't worry about that. So the word Christos, it means to anoint. Like I said, it has the idea of, I need somebody to uh, demonstrate on here. I need a volunteer. Who can come up here for a quick second? Great. Thank you, Wayne. You're very brave. Okay, if you could imagine me um, coming up to Wayne with my bottle of cold-pressed extra virgin olive oil and dumping the whole thing all over his head, and it would be running down his... He would be getting in his ears. It would be running down his eyebrows. It would be... Um, ruining his shirt and his suit jacket, he would be a very uh, sticky and shiny person. Um, thank you, Wayne. I just, just wanted to use that as an illustration. That is the idea of anointed. It means to have oil dumped all over you. All right? So we're going to look at a couple places where this verb, Christos, or Mashiach, turns up in, uh, in the Bible that Jesus read. This verb, okay, the, the Greek is Christos. Everybody say Christos. The Hebrew is Mashiach. Okay? The verb meshach means to dump oil on something or somebody. Um, that would be spelled with the three Hebrew letters mem, sheen, and chet. Meshach. Okay? Here's, here are a couple examples of this verb where it turns up in the Hebrew Bible. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 13, this is uh, the Almighty speaking to Jacob, and this is what he says I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar. That word there is, you mashacht a pillar. So this is the first time that this verb comes up. So the first thing to be Christed, to be Messiah, is actually a rock. Jacob dumps a bunch of oil on a rock. Another place where this turns up, uh, I think this is the favorite Bible verse of snackers. If you like snacking and eating different kinds of crackers, like seriously, this is your verse. Um, in Exodus chapter 29, verse 2, it talks about these different kinds of offerings. Uh, unleavened bread, which is like, you know, cracker bread kind of. And unleavened cakes mixed with oil. I love oil, oily stuff. And unleavened wafers spread with oil. Mmm. Everybody say, mmm. Make them a fine wheat flour. Yeah, so the word there for spread is meshacht. Everybody say meshach. It's the word for Messiah or Christ. These crackers are anointed with oil. So it's not just a little sprinkling. It's like you smear it all over it. Okay, in this room there are two kinds of people. There are people who spread their peanut butter to the very edges of the bread, and there are people who just kind of whack it on. How many people spread their peanut butter to the very edges of the bread? Okay, how many people just kind of whack it on, more or less? Okay, I whack the peanut butter on. Genevieve spreads to the very edges. I noticed that this week. I was like, wow, you are really meticulous in how you put your peanut butter, apply your peanut butter on your bread. I was like, that's different. I like that about you. Um, 
Okay, the idea here is like you're spreading the oil on all of the bread. So it doesn't just get a little sprinkling. It's like the way you put peanut butter all the way around on your bread. You're spreading it, okay? So these are the first two ideas behind metoining. Dumping oil on something, like a rock. Spreading it on something, like you spread peanut butter on your bread. The third one is in Exodus chapter 40, verse 9. It says, then take the anointing oil and anoint. That word is mashach or messiah the tabernacle and everything that's in it. Consecrate it and all its furniture, and it shall be holy. All right? So we see that Moses didn't just put oil on people. There were actually certain objects that anointing oil was dumped on or applied to, and it made them holy. It set them apart. So that's another example. And then we have one more verse. This one is really fascinating. It's from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22. Uh, I, I love the prophets. They're hardcore. They really dug into people sometimes. They were highly political. They couldn't keep their mouths shut. Sometimes it did cost them their lives, but it's because they had a message from God. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, there was this guy that had become the governor of Judea. He was kind of like the mayor of the city. And his name was Shalom. He was the son of Josiah, who was a fam- famous king. And Shalom spent most of his time building his palace. He had like a gorgeous mansion. He put a lot of funds into this thing. And people in the city were starving. People were being mistreated. And he just didn't care. He was really self-absorbed. And so Jeremiah tears into this guy. And uh, in the process of describing Shalom and, and what he was up to, he says this, Shalom says, I'll build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar, which is, you know, like triple grade A wood, and painting it bright red. Did you know the word for Messiah is in that verse? Where it says painting. That word is Meshach. So does that mean he dumped, like, was he just spattering red paint on the walls, or was he dumping red paint? No, in this case, it means he was applying it thoroughly and evenly, painting, all right? So get this right off the bat. When God anoints you with the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just give you a little sprinkling. He dumps the Holy Spirit on you. He applies the Holy Spirit to every aspect of who you are. And it's like he paints you with the Holy Spirit. If you can imagine him painting you with the Holy Spirit. that's That's the bigger idea of this term in Hebrew. And it's also the idea of Yeshua being anointed. So hopefully that gives us a bigger feel. All right, there are three physical hallmarks of this, when you get when you get oil dumped on you or applied to you in a, in a thorough fashion like this, um, I need a I need another volunteer. Braden, Braden, do you want to come up here and be my volunteer? Kind of fun. I won't I won't do anything scary to you. You don't worry. I'll let you sit in my sit sit in the cool chair here. Okay, how old are you, Braden? It's a pretty big chair, hey. You're seven years old? Cool. Um, there, was, there was a guy in Israel, like, a long time ago, and he was, he was, like, he was eight years old when they made him the king. Like, can you imagine if they elected you to be the prime minister of Canada? You know, like, maybe you've seen Prime Minister Stephen Harper on TV. Could you imagine being, like, the king of Canada at, like, maybe next year, let's say for your eighth birthday? It's pretty crazy, hey? But that's what happened with one of those guys. Yeah. In, uh, in ancient times, if they made somebody a king, what they would do is they would take oil and they would dump it on the guy's head. Should I do, I don't know, do you think I should do that to you today? 
Okay, I won't dump any oil on your head, Braden. But, um, but that's what they would do. And um, it was actually, it was um, really like, really, like they would mix spices into it, so it would smell really nice. Like, you know, some guys wear cologne, you know, good smelling things. It would be kind of like that. So let's, let's just imagine this for a second. Let's say that Braden was anointed king. He was, he was, he's the king, and they dumped oil all over him. We're not going to dump oil on you. But let's just, let's just imagine for a second what that would look like. Um, firstly, visually, in terms of your sight, how it would look, it would cause, it would cause Braden's head and his hair to, like, be really shiny, to glisten. Like, because that light would just reflect the light. It would, it would, re, it would almost refract the light to some degree. And, uh, it, it reminds me of two English words, actually. We have the word brilliant. If someone is, uh, th- this is teaching us about the anointing, how it looks on Yeshua and how it looks on you and me. Oil is shiny. It reflects light, is the first thing. Uh, we, in English, we have the word brilliant. If someone is exceptionally gifted, if they're really smart, we say that person is brilliant in that area. Well, the anointing makes you brilliant in the capacities to which the Father's called you. Um, we also have the word illuminary. Uh, if you have someone who is like a a foremost example of something in their profession or in their trade or in their field of study in their generation, you'd see that person was a luminary. What would be some examples of that, just uh, off the top of our head? Some, 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 some field of work or study or something. Someone who was outstanding in their time. Einstein, Einstein was a luminary. Edison was a luminary. <laughs> Ha, 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 Linda. Coal miners with the lamps on their heads. Quite literally, yeah. Um, uh, to, some people, to some people, Elvis Presley was a luminary in the world of rock and roll. Um, that would be another example, to think of some diverse fields. We have luminaries in the Messianic Jewish movement. Uh, Vine of David, for instance, is doing a great job unearthing their works and translating them into English so that we can read about the luminaries of the Messianic Jewish movement, not just in the last couple of decades, but in the last several centuries. Okay, so those are some examples. The anointing makes you a luminary. The early Yeshua movement had luminaries. Yeshua is our primary luminary, and then there were others. Uh, guys like uh, Matthew, who wrote the, the book we're studying right now. He was a luminary of the early Yeshua movement. So those are some words that we have that are connected with how oil looks when you dump it on someone's head. Uh, secondly, tactilely, in terms of touch, if we were to dump oil all over Braden's head, and then we were to like feel that, how would that oil feel? It would feel kind of sticky. Uh, it would also feel kind of smooth. If you've ever, um, let's say, put some oil on your fingers and felt your fingers, it makes them smooth. That's why we put oil in our vehicles, because it makes the way they run smooth. All right? So tactilely, the anointing is something that is smooth. What do we learn from this on a practical level? When you are anointed for a task, it's going to be smooth. It's going to come smoothly to you. Uh, when the Father anoints you to get a job done for his kingdom, that's just, it's going to flow. Like, it's going to come naturally. Um, so, if you, that, so that helps you understand your giftings often too. What do you naturally do? What, what flows for you? And it'll be different for each one of us. Uh, you guys know that I'm a compulsive teacher. I love teaching. It comes naturally to me. It's a very smooth thing. You don't usually hear me stumbling for words and not sure what to say when I'm talking, when I'm preaching, right? That, that might indicate, I'm just thinking in my case, I might have an anointing to, to preach. And each of you has an anointing from the Holy Spirit to do something where it just comes really smoothly like that. 
And then thirdly, olfactorily, which means in terms of how something smells, oil is fragrant. It's like, you know guys put on cologne today and they smell good, and some people think it's attractive and some people don't, especially if they have allergies. Well, in the ancient Middle East, oil was cologne. So you would mix up different kinds of spices and things, and then you'd smell really good. So, you know, let's say that Braden was being anointed the king of Israel, and they dumped the oil on him, he would smell really good. Like, you could smell him from a mile off. And you'd be like, oh, who is that? He smells really good. So um, that's the idea. So, Braden, thanks. You can, I'll, let you, I'll let you sit down, and I, I appreciate you being our, being our example. Are you, are, you, are you happy I didn't dump oil all over you? Okay, cool, good. I can if you want me to. That would be kind of fun too. So I, uh, I, I actually have here, this is one of the little flasks of oil that Genevieve and I uh, gave as our favors for our wedding over four years ago. So I'm going to pop this for you and you guys can pass it around and don't dump it on your neighbor. I don't want anyone anointing anybody else. But um, just take a little, put it, put it on your hand or put it like on your cheek or your neck or somewhere where you can smell it. And this, this has some of the spices in it that were actually in the kingly anointing oil. It's not the exact same mixture of proportions, but it'll give you some idea. All right, so I'm just going to hand this out, and you guys, can, you guys can pass this around. So basically, what that means is in the ancient Middle Eastern world, the guy who was anointed is like the guy who wore the cologne, the guy who smelled really good. All right, that has to do with the anointing. What does that mean about you? It means if the Father anoints you, it will be an attractive thing. It will smell good. Uh, maybe to unbelievers you'll stink, but to the Father and to his people, you'll smell good. Um, that also, what does that tell us about Yeshua, the ultimate anointed one? Yeshua wears the best cologne ever. He smells really good. I actually know, I have personal friends who in, in, in times of prayer, early in the morning, have all of a sudden just had this scent waft into the room. And it was Yeshua's presence. And it had a specific fragrance. And in fact, I, I, I know at least one person like this who, who smelled that fragrance, and it was a beautiful thing. And it was just such an intimate thing between Yeshua and this person. And years later, they smelled the anointing oil that was used in the Bible, or a replica of it. And they said, I've smelled that before. I've smelled that in times of prayer. All right, that's Yeshua. That's the anointing. And it even manifests physically sometimes. Okay. Um, the term anointed or Mashiach turns up all over the Bible. Now let me ask you. If someone were to tell you, I believe that there are more than one Christs in the Bible, what would you do? You'd probably write them off as a weirdo right away. Like, all of our walls go up, strange person, Right? The person believes in multiple messiahs. But actually there are several, and, and Yeshua is, let me clarify, Yeshua is the messiah, okay? But there are people in the Old Testament that were called messiahs. They were called Christoses in the sense of their being anointed either literally with physical oil or with the Holy Spirit. And they were little pictures of Yeshua who is the anointed one. I want to look at a couple of those people with you. Does anybody know who the first anointed one, the first Messiah mentioned in the Bible is? I know you're not going to get this. I, like, I bugged our congregation in Saskatoon for like 15 minutes with this question once. They were all guessing away. So um, I'm just going to read it to you. In Psalm 105, verse 15, in reference to the patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzchak, 
and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is what the Holy One says. Don't touch my anointed ones. You can back up there. And do my prophets no harm. All right? This, so here, get this. The first prophets mentioned that I can think of in the Tanakh are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were full-on prophets. And they were also anointed ones. Messiahs. In, 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 the, like in Hebrew it says, don't touch Meshichai. Don't touch my Messiahs. It's kind of crazy to think about that, isn't it? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were God's Messiahs? Yes. In the sense of God anointing them. In the sense of them being prophets, spokesperson, spokespeople for Yahweh. So get that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your forefathers in the faith, and I'm guessing their wives too, your foremothers in the faith, they were messianic. They were anointed with the Holy Spirit. That is, that is the tradition in which you run. Um, secondly, so, so get that. The first anointed people in the Bible are prophets. They're people who speak for God. Uh, secondly, in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19... I'm not going to read the whole chapter here, but um, I love I love First Kings 19. It's the story of Elijah after his showdown with the false prophets in First Kings 18 uh, of Baal and Asherah. Then he goes on the run from Jezebel. He ends up running through the desert for over 40 days, ultra marathon run. He ends up at Mount Mount Sinai, and uh, Yahweh comes and speaks to him, and Yahweh gives him a mission. And this is what he says: uh, Elijah, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you've arrived, anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah anoint as prophet in your place. Alright? So just notice that Elisha was anointed as a prophet. So Mashiach can mean someone anointed as a prophet. Okay, everybody say prophet. That's the first category. Let's look at the next category of anointed people. Uh, This is the one that's used most often in the Torah. That is, a priest. A priest was called a Mashiach, a Messiah. It's used over and over, especially in the book of Leviticus. Um, I'll give you an example. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 12, says, Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and anointed him to consecrate him. So Aaron got the oil dumped on him. And uh, the word there for anointing oil, I'm going to give you that word. Oil in Hebrew is shemen. Everybody say shemen. So I think you all have a little shemen on you right now. You, you, you put some shemen on yourself, okay? Uh, the word for anointing in that context is mishcha. Everybody say mishcha. So I, I, would, I would transliterate that. M-I-S-H-C-H- A-H. Well, there are a lot of H's in there. Mishcha. So the word for anointing oil in Hebrew is Shemen Hamishcha. Everybody say Shemen Hamishcha. Yeah. And that is what was put on Aaron. He was Messiah. He was Christed. Now, notice in this verse that the anointing consecrates a person. That's a fancy word for setting someone aside for a specific mission or giving them a specific job. So the anointing on Yeshua consecrated him for a specific mission. The anointing on you sets you apart for a specific job. Let's look at that a little further. 
That's, so that's priest for you. There were priests who were Mashiachs, who were, who were anointed. And then the third category, this is the one that we're really going to key in on because it's the one that's most used in the Jewish world and most used in the Bible. A king was called a Messiah. A king is a, a national monarch. Uh, it's a ruler with absolute authority. There actually aren't many kings in today's world. Uh, currently, England has a queen, but no king. An up-and-coming king. Um, I, I, I recently heard uh, during the UN speeches that Sweden is a kingdom. So Sweden probably still has a king as their national figurehead. But that's the idea. Um, I'm going to give you some examples of this word anointing for kings and for national leaders. In uh, Judges chapter 9, we have a sad story about Gideon's sons. We know a lot about Gideon and his 300 and how he wrote of the Amalekites and it was a great story. Uh, Gideon Gideon went on to have 70 boys, never mind his girls. He had a ton of wives, and evidently he was very busy. Unfortunately, after he died, um, the nation was incredibly thankless, and uh, they let this, they let this um, really unpleasant guy named Abimelech convince them to kill all of Gideon's sons so Abimelech could be king. So they killed 69 of his sons, and one of them, the youngest, whose name was Jotham, escaped. Everybody say Jotham. Okay, so he escapes. Um, this was in the biblical city of Shechem. So he escapes into the mountains around there. And then he comes back to them when they're anointing Abimelech to be their king. And he just tears into them in the form of a parable. Because telling parables, like picturesque stories, are often how you'll communicate in Hebrew culture. And um, th- this was part of his story. He says, Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. And in this story, he says, the olive tree said, listen, I'm, I'm busy making olives so you can have oil. I, I, I can't be your king. And then they went to another productive tree, and, then, and, the, and the productive tree said the same thing. So then they went to a, like a thorn bush, and they're like, you reign over us. And he's like, sure, but it's going to hurt, and fire's going to burn you. And so they anoint the thorn bush, and he ends up, it ends up being really uncomfortable. And that's the end of the story. And, you know, if you read Judges chapter 9, they had a really happy couple of years with their new king Abimelech, and then things went really sour, and everybody was killing each other. Read Judges chapter 9 for yourself. You'll enjoy the story. Um, so anyway, I think this is the first instance in the Hebrew Bible of anointing being a reference to a king being anointed. And this is interesting because it's several centuries before Saul was anointed as king. So even before Saul was anointed as king, when there were no anointed kings in Israel, it was still a custom to dump oil on a guy to inaugurate him as king. So this, this was probably just a general Middle Eastern custom. I'm going, to read, uh, I'm going to read three short stories to you of guys who were anointed as king. It was like the greatest day of their lives. If you can imagine being anointed in front of billions of people as their national monarch... I want you to kind of imagine this with me. We're going to look at the anointings of actually four guys. uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and Jehu. And we're not going to read the whole stories. I'm just going to give you the the highlight. In um, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, we read this. Um, Yahweh is speaking to his, his prophet Samuel. And he says, About this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He'll deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've regarded my people. 
because their cries come to me. All right? So he always says, I'm sending you a guy from Benjamin, anoint him to be prince over my people. In the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, we read, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you? That's the word for Messiah there. He messiahed you, a ruler over his inheritance. Now this is interesting. After Saul turned mean and ugly and was on the rampage to try and kill David, frequently David had times that he could have taken Saul out. And in fact, it would have even looked like it was the right thing to do. But, so, but David consistently refrained. And this is what he said, I will not touch Yahweh's anointed. Guess what it says in Hebrew? I won't touch Yahweh's Mashiach, his Messiah. In the Septuagint, he, he said, I won't touch the Lord's Christ. So get that. Saul, even after he turned into one ugly dude, he, and he went to mediums and was just a murderer, he was still anointed by God. He was still a Christ figure. He was still messianic. That's scary. It's really scary that you can have an anointing and you can move in that anointing and you can be murderous, you can be ugly, you can be a persecutor, you can be totally disobedient to Torah. So when you see someone who's anointed, don't just follow them or listen to them because they're anointed. You need to look at their character. You need to look at, if it's a guy, you need to look at how he's treating his wife. You need to look at how he's conducting his family. You need to look at, like, lifestyle stuff. You need to look at, like, personal integrity and righteousness on a practical level. Those kinds of things are really important. And very often in the church world, someone does some signs and wonders or someone pops up on the scene who's anointed and everybody goes gaga and follows him without checking his credentials. And that's really dangerous. It's a really good way to fall for false prophets and teachers. So, you know, I'm all for the anointing. I'm all for signs and wonders. But at the same time, we need to be careful and we need to look at the big picture. And that's a, that's a lesson that Saul gives us. Let's look at the, uh, the coronation of David. Now, this is interesting because he gets, actually gets anointed several times. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 3... And then in verses 12 and 13, uh, this is the story of David's anointing. Uh, uh, Yahweh is speaking to, uh, to Shmuel, to Samuel, and uh, he instigates him to uh, actually perform an act of treason. If there's already a king in place, and you go and anoint someone else king in his place, that is an act of treason. That could get your head removed from your body in short order. So that's, this is the idea here. Yahweh is speaking to Samuel, and he says, Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. So he's going undercover here. And you shall anoint for me, there's the word for the Messiah, the one whom I designate to you. And then in verse 12, it goes on to say, so, uh, you know, so he goes through his brothers, and Samuel sees Eliab, and he's like, wow, this guy's tall, this guy's good looking, he's the one for sure. And he says to Yahweh in his mind, Yahweh, surely your Mashiach is before you. And Yahweh says, nope, because I look at people's hearts. And I'm looking at his heart. And he's, okay, I'm paraphrasing, right? That's the way I think. I like to think of stories in like terms that I, I think of. Okay, so then, so, then, so then you know the story, right? All, seven bro- all the brothers go before him, and everyone is like, thumbs down, thumbs down, thumbs down. Finally, they're no brothers. And Samuel's like, I'm supposed to anoint one of these guys, but they're all thumbs down. What's up? And uh, so he says, Aren't there, are there any more brothers? And they're like, yeah, there's the little guy, but he's out with the sheep. Yeah, so you know the story. They bring him in. And it says, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance. And he always said, arise, anoint him, mashach him. 
Christ him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. So did you see that? There's a connection between the physical act of dumping olive oil and what it pictures. The Spirit of Yahweh coming upon someone mightily. So what is the heart of being anointed, of being Messiah, of being Christed? Having the Spirit of Yahweh come upon you mightily. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to like um, fast forward several years, okay? Um, between, okay, so David got anointed. Since then, you know, he went out, he slew Goliath, um, you know, ran around with his head for a while. Everyone was like, he was the national celebrity. Everyone was like, wow, David, he's our hero. And uh, you know the story, Saul got jealous Saul went on the rampage. David had to run off to the wilderness. He was running around in the desert, hiding out in kind of big rocky areas and caves and stuff. And, um, and then finally Saul dies in a Philistine uh, encounter with the Philistines. And uh, this is what happens after that. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. Then the men of Judah, that's just from the tribe of Judah. That was, that was David's home tribe, right? These were the guys that were closest to him and his family. They came and they're meshacht. Christ did David, king over the house of Judah. All right? So that was the second anointing that David had. He actually didn't get anointed over all of Israel right away. He got anointed by the prophet Samuel. Then he went through several brutal years where he was whole, like, tested to the max. He was, it was not fun. Running around in the desert with a bunch of thugs. And uh, they, 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 you know, when they came to him, there were some pretty rough guys. Like it says, these were guys that were disgruntled or guys that couldn't pay their debts, etc. So they ran off to David. So these guys were thugs. But David was in the process of making them uh, a real elite force that hopefully had some internal righteousness too. Um, So, you know, time progresses. And then finally, David is brought in as the king of Judah. But he still isn't anointed king over the other tribes. That happens later. Um, Actually, here, next, next one. Okay, cool. Yeah, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. So then there's some more time when there's like these clashes between Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, who is anointed king over the other tribes, and David, who is anointed king of Judah. Finally, Ishbosheth gets killed, and then this is what we read. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Hebron. Uh, historically, Hebron was where kings were anointed. And Hebron today is hotly disputed on an international level. There is a Jewish community there. It's small. A lot of them were murdered by Arabs in the 1920s. And it's one of the areas that they want to give to the Arab peoples. Never mind that there has always been a Jewish presence there for the last roughly 3,500 years. Hebron. Take note of that. The tribes of Israel came to David on Hebron and said, Look, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. So in other words, you were the one who actually led Israel. And Yahweh said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you'll be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before Yahweh at Hebron. Then they anointed they meshacht, they Christed David king over Israel. Are you getting the picture that when, when the oil is poured on a man, that is, that is making him king? Yes. All right. Um, let's look at 
the son of David, Shlomo, and his anointing as king. I know, I, I, personally, I love these stories. I love these stories about a nation and kings and conflict and adventure. Like for me, it really brings the word to life. So you kind of got to kind of almost get into like a, a fairy tale or an epic kind of mindset, right? And really get into these stories. I'm in these stories right now. Um, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 39, we read, uh, Tzadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed, meshacht, Christed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! Okay, next verse. This is about two kings, actually. Jehu and a guy named Hazael. In 1 Kings 19, 15 to 16, we read this already. It says, Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you've arrived, anoint Hazael king over Aram. So that's the word for Meshaching, for Christing. It's interesting. The prophet didn't just appoint a king over Israel. He actually was operating on an international level and going and dumping oil on guys in other countries to appoint them as king. Hazel didn't become king right away, actually, in that scenario. It's interesting. Uh, there, was, there was some stuff that happened between then and when he became king. And he goes on to say, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint, you shall Meshach, you shall Christ king over Israel. So, just take note of that. God actually anointed Hazael to be king over Aram. Um, the rest of that story is when the prophet went to anoint Hazael, he just stood there and stared at him for a long time and started bawling. And Hazael was really uncomfortable. He's like, what, what's, what's wrong? And Elijah said, I, I see that you're going to kill a lot of people in Israel. You're going you're to destroy cities. You're going to brutalize um, pregnant women and kill, kill kids. You know, and horrible stuff. But Elijah still followed the master's orders and he still anointed Hazael. So again, just because someone is anointed doesn't mean they're going to do good stuff. They may go on, they go, may go on terror campaigns after that. All right? So again, it's not like the anointing is important, but character is where it's at. Um, here's another interesting example. Uh, this, is the, this is kind of almost a quandary. In the book of Isaiah... The prophet Yeshayahu, chapter 45, verse 1. I want to give you the history of this before we read it. Isaiah lived about a century and a half before Jeremiah the prophet and the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? So he lived like, okay, let's say that we, let's say that Jerusalem this year was um, attacked and taken and destroyed and all the Jewish people there were exiled to like Saudi Arabia or something. Okay? And all the Jewish people were there for 70 years. That the prophet Isaiah, he would have been around like in the 1850s or the 1840s. That's the idea, okay? Now here's the cool thing. It, this isn't actually given in the Bible. This is given, I think, in Josephus. But he says that during the exile, the prophet Daniel went to Cyrus, the king of Media, after they came in and captured, um, captured Babylon. And he said, we've been waiting for you. We actually have in our possession a document from one of our prophets. And he wrote this thing over 200 years ago. And uh, he wrote it for you. Your name is Cyrus, and this is for Cyrus. And then he read it to him. And Cyrus was floored. Cyrus was like, wow, the God of Israel is the real God. And he knew about me. So what he says to do in these chapters, I better do. And so if you read the story, that's why he went on to authorize and fund the rebuilding of the temple. It's because there was a prophecy in the Bible to him a couple hundred years before. All right. So this is how these chapters, Isaiah chapter 45, um, begins. It says, Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, his Mashiach, his Christ. 
whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And then it goes on and on. It's like a couple of chapters and it's very poetic and I'm sure it floored Cyrus. But notice this. Cyrus was a pagan. Cyrus worshipped a whack of gods. He had a lot of gods and they were all false gods. And centuries before he even was born, Yahweh said, you are going to be my anointed one for a specific task. I am going to put my spirit on you to get a job done for my people Israel. You are, you are my Messiah. You are my Christ. That's, that's what it would be saying in Hebrew or Greek, okay? Um, that's interesting. Just note here, God anoints people at times who may be pagans, who may worship false gods, who may have no clue about who he is, and he'll still just put a spirit on him to get a job done. Uh, let that be your worldview. Let that be a lens through which you read history. He's very involved on, international, on an international level, and he has been since the start. Um, I personally believe that our Prime Minister Stephen Harper is anointed, with that understanding of anointing, to stand for Israel, to speak out against anti-Semitism and spearhead a fight against it on an international level. Uh, if you saw Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's speech before the UN uh, a little over a week ago, I believe that he is anointed to stand for Israel also, to defend his people and to call, to, to call things what they are at the UN, which can sometimes be a gong show. Um, if pff, Netanyahu pulled no punches. like He, he just spoke so straight up and uh, he, he said, I, when I go to the UN, I'm going to speak the truth. It's not popular, a lot of people don't care, but I'm going to speak the truth. It takes the spirit of truth to speak the truth, especially against overwhelming odds. So let that be your worldview. Watch for people who are anointed and pray for national leaders, even pagans, even people who are dead set against the one true God, that God will pour his spirit out on them and anoint them to come in line with his purposes. I believe that's a very biblical prayer that you can pray, and it will impact planet Earth. Um, okay, this is cool. I really like the anointing of Jehu. We're going to read the, the high point of the anointing of Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. This is what it says. It's talking about the prophet uh, Elijah after he goes and anoints Hazael. It says, He arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head, that is on Jehu's head, and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I've anointed you king over the people of Yahweh, even over Israel. And then he says some things, so that you can kill Ahab and wipe out Jezebel and her household, and some stuff like that. And then, and then it says, Then he opened the door and fled. Why did he flee? Because he just committed an act of treason. Ahab was the king, and this prophet just goes to Jehu, and he's like, God is anointing you as king and go kill the king, go kill the queen and go kill everyone in their house. Uh, wow, hey? Like this is high adventure. This is radical stuff. And uh, so anyway, the prophet runs. He takes off and goes and hides out somewhere. Now Jehu came out to the servants of his master and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? Think about this. Jehu's with like all of his dudes, okay? Like these guys are soldiers. They're tough. Um, they probably talk on that kind of level. So you kind of hear it. It's like, is everything okay? What's this crazy guy doing talking to you, you know? And um, it's kind of interesting. They'd call the prophet a madman. I wonder what the prophet came across as sometimes. 
that he would make these soldiers think he was crazy. Anyway, and he said to them, you know very well the man and his talk. They said, it's a lie. Tell us right now. <laughs> I love that. Like, Jehu, come on, tell us the truth. What's, going, what's really going on here? And, um, and he said, thus and thus. He said to me, thus says Yahweh, I've anointed you. And that's that word for Meshaching or Christing, you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet, the shofar, saying, Jehu is king! It was the start of a revolution. So Jehu went, empowered by that, and you know the rest of the story. He, dro- he, dro- he drove like a maniac. He was famous for driving like a maniac. They could see him a long way off when he was coming towards the capital. They said, that's got to be Jehu. That guy's driving like crazy. And you know the story. He comes out. He puts an arrow right between the shoulder blades of the king that he's supposed to kill. And then he goes and uh, he has the servants throw Jezebel out of a high-story window, and she dies, and the dogs eat her. It's like, wow, I, 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 I love Bible stories. They're crazy, hey? Like, man, stuff like that doesn't happen every day in, um, some, in, in necessarily. But um, so that's that story. But I want you to notice something about this because it's an insight into the anointing that's on Yeshua and the anointing as it acts when it's on, when it's on you or on me. Jehu was anointed specifically to destroy leadership that had become corrupt and compromising. Actually, what Linda was praying today, I, I thought about that. Um, she was talking about how Yeshua is the king, he is the one who calls the shots in the midst of his people, and he will remove leadership that is set against him, or that's arrogant, or that has agendas other than the agenda of his Holy Spirit. Jehu was anointed with that same anointing to get that job done. Jehu was also anointed to destroy a generation of false prophets. He was on the war path. Like prophets who spoke, who either prophesied for false gods, or prophets who spoke supposedly in the name of Yahweh, but led people astray and dragged them away from the Torah and said, let's worship in new ways? Jehu was those people's worst enemy because he was anointed by God and he came in and he dealt with them. So the anointing doesn't always make people super nice, warm, cuddly, and controllable. The anointing makes men and women dangerous for the kingdom in a good way. Not dangerous against people who are righteous, but against false spirits and people who are compromising. Scary stuff. Great question. The garments that these guys took off, or is that their prayer shawls? Um, today in the Jewish world, you know you have your tallit, your prayer shawl, and that's kind of something you only wear when you're praying generally. But in ancient times, that was your sweater or your coat, basically, right? So it's like they took off their coats and they did have the tzitzit on the corners and that's what they laid down for them. Yeah. Yeah. So that would, those would have been the equivalent uh, of their prayer shells. Um, thirdly, Jehu is... Okay, so he was anointed to destroy corrupt and compromising leadership, to destroy a generation of false prophets, and he was anointed to permanently deal with the female spirit of control that had hijacked the national leadership of Israel. Jehu was Jezebel's worst nightmare. When the anointing of Yeshua comes on people in the midst of the body of Messiah, it is the worst nightmare of the Jezebel spirit also. There will be war. There will be conflict, and she will go down. That's what the anointing does. I'm going to give you two more passages from the ancient prophets about, about Mashiach, about the anointing. Isn't this cool? Is this giving you a fuller understanding of who Jesus is as the Christ? Who Yeshua is as the Messiah? It's like, wow. 
Um, okay, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. This is probably the most explicit prophecy of the coming of Messiah in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Daniel 9, 25 says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. If you look at the context of this, this is Daniel when the Jewish people were in Babylon. After that, the king of excuse me, Persia did issue that decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And it states very explicitly, there are going to be so many years between then and when the Messiah shows up. Guess who showed up right on schedule? It was Yeshua. There have been Orthodox Jews who have come to faith in Yeshua solely based on this verse. I I have a book that I've read through uh, called What the Rabbis Know About Messiah. It's by an author named Rachmiel Friedland. Rachmiel Friedland was 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 a pioneer in the Messianic Jewish movement. And he came to faith as an Orthodox Jew and a rabbi, I believe, by reading the book of Daniel and saying, okay, let's crunch the numbers. Who showed up? Yeshua. He was the Messiah. Ding! It's that easy. Um... I love that. Um, actually, this is interesting. The book of Daniel in the Hebrew canon of books is not included in the prophets. It's, put, it's tucked away way in the back along with like chronicles and some other stuff in the writings. Hmm. Why wasn't Daniel included with the prophets? Hmm. So you know what? If you're, if you're talking with Jewish people about Yeshua being the Mashiach, look at that verse and say, this is very clearly when Mashiach was going to come. Now, either Mashiach didn't come and the Bible's a lie, or he did come, and uh, we need to look at who the best candidate is. Um, here's, another, here's one more passage about, about this. In uh, the book of Yeshayahu, or Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1, I love this passage because shortly after Yeshua was anointed, when he was immersed at the hands of, of, of Yochanan, the immerser, in the Jordan, and he did, his, he did his trial in the wilderness, and then he came back up into the Galilee. He went to the synagogue, like he did every, every Saturday, and uh, he stood up to read from the prophets. And this was the passage that he read. This was the passage that inaugurated his ministry in Israel. He said, The Spirit of the Master, Yahweh, is upon me, because Yahweh has mashacht me. He has Christed me to preach Good news to the afflicted. That means like those who are in pain, those who are broken, those who are hurting and depressed. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. There's the Mashiach's job description. That is what you will compulsively do when the Spirit comes upon you. And it was an unmistakable declaration of who Yeshua was. He's saying, guys, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. Notice too, notice too here, like when the anointing comes on a man or comes on a woman, that person can't help but preach. When Yeshua was anointed, he was anointed as a preacher. Um, Sometimes in the broader Christian world, preaching isn't valued very highly. It's downplayed. Often people will be like, oh, I can't stand hearing someone stand there and talk for half an hour. Oh, I have to, I have whatever to do, you know? And um, people, some people have really bad attitudes sometimes about preaching. Often in the messianic world, people will be like, ah, same thing, right? It's like, eh, you know, in the church, someone would stand there and talk for half an hour and I didn't get to say anything and I really have stuff to say and I'm important. 
because I'm a snowflake and I'm special, you know, kind of stuff like that. We're products of our high self-esteem culture, and so we kind of get attitudes like that, right? And uh, sometimes in the messianic world, we, we get rid of preaching altogether, and we replace it with, mid- with midrash. And I love midrash. There's a place for it. Midrash where everybody gets a say, everybody gets to say, well, I think this, and I think that, and let's have an argument because we think differently. And there's a place for that, right? I love Midrash. But sometimes people replace preaching with Midrash. And in my opinion, when you do that, whether, whether you're emergent or messianic or whatever, you are not welcoming the Holy Spirit in your midst. You're actually closing the door to the anointing of God. Because when God anoints people, He anoints people to preach. So there's a time for somebody to stand and declare the Word of God authoritatively. And there are also times to have discussions. There are times for both. Um... Notice too here, the first criterion for a preacher, it isn't academic credentials and degrees, although those can be helpful. It's not letters of recommendation and popularity, although there is a place for that. It's not a deep voice and great oratorical skills, although that can be nice. The first criterion for a preacher, according to this verse, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So you know what? God has raised up and he will raise up people who will be his preachers and will speak for him and they will have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on them and they will not fit people's boxes or expectations. Maybe they're really shy. Maybe, maybe they talk quietly. Maybe they stutter. Maybe they have no degrees. Maybe they never even graduated from high school. You name it. It doesn't matter. Watch for the anointing because that is what, that's what qualifies you as a preacher. Okay, so that gives us a big look at what it means that Jesus is the Christ, that Yeshua is the Mashiach. That is why Matthew opened his gospel with that line to his audience who were thoroughly fluent in the Hebrew scriptures, who knew all these stories. They were like, wow, he's saying that Yeshua is the prophet, the ultimate prophet. Yeshua is the priest, our intermediary between us and the Almighty. And Yeshua, most importantly, is the king, the king of Israel, the one appointed by the Holy One to rule over us. Um, I'm going to give you a Hebrew term that's used for this today. You know, the Jewish people are still watching for the Mashiach. The Jewish people are waiting for the king to show up. Um, the term that's most often used in the Jewish world for this figure is the Melech. Everybody say Melech. Melech. HaMashiach. A Melech is a king. Okay? Melech, king. So David the king, in Hebrew is called David, HaMelech. Melech, HaMashiach, means, it literally means king the anointed. But it means the anointed king. Okay? So in the Jewish world, everybody's watching for the Melech HaMashiach. That's the phrase that's generally used. Uh, in the Lubavitch sect, in Chabad, they believe that Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson was the Melech HaMashiach. They say he is the Melech HaMashiach. Um, I would beg to differ on that one. He wasn't raised from the dead. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. He didn't show up roughly uh, however many years after Jerusalem was built. Um, he just does not fit a lot of the criterion. Yeah. Okay. Um, a very popular phrase also, especially in the Second Temple era, for the king was the Ben David. Everybody say Ben David. What does that mean in English? The son of David. You remember over and over, people were like, Son of David, help me, to Yeshua. They were saying, Messiah, help me. You're the king. Right? That's still used today. Um, I've went over this before, but I'll summarize it for you. In Orthodox Jewish theology, 
it's generally believed that there are actually going to be two messiahs. There's going to be a suffering messiah who's going to die, and there's going to be a kingly messiah who will whoop the enemies and rule. The suffering messiah is called Messiah, son of Joseph, Mashiach ben Yosef, because Joseph was a Christ figure who was rejected by his brothers, who went into exile, who became very powerful, and who did not look Jewish at all. And that's, that tells us something about Messiah. And Orthodox Jewish people know this. So they say, okay, there's going to be a Messiah like Joseph, and he's going to suffer and die. That's Messiah, son of Joseph. Then there's going to be a Messiah like David, and he's going to be the ruling Messiah, the kingly Messiah. Now, interestingly enough, David was rejected too. David was severely unpopular with the majority for quite a few years when he was out in the wilderness before he was welcomed by the people of Israel. So they would say, you know, Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, he's going to be the kingly Messiah. Now, guess what? We believe that too, except we don't believe that's one person, two people. We believe that's one, one Messiah in two comings. He came as Messiah, son of Joseph the first time. He's coming back as Messiah, son of David. That's a big theme, but I want to, want to just give that to you. So when in your face, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, this is about Yeshua, the Mashiach, the King, the son of David, the Ben David, he's saying very clearly who he's talking about and what he believes about him. Okay, I want to finish this talk by explaining to you briefly why this is important, the doctrine of Yeshua as King, and... I want to answer a couple objections that different worldviews and religions would give. Because you know what? Not everybody believes this. And maybe it wouldn't, wouldn't hurt to know why they don't believe this and what they believe and uh, why I think they're wrong. Okay. So, neo-Nazism. I'll, I'll start with that. Um, Ray Comfort, famous evangelist, just came out with a movie called 180. You should watch it. He talks about how a lot of people in our culture are clueless about who Adolf Hitler was. History is just getting set up to repeat itself. Um, I've only watched part of it so far, but uh, check it out. We'll probably watch it for Rosh Chodesh or something as a congregation. It's a good film, good documentary. Anyway, um, he interviews a neo-Nazi on it, and this is what neo-Nazism would say. Yeshua was a Jew, and Jews lie. And Christianity is just a tool of the Jews to trick the world so the Jews can continue to control the world. All right? That's what neo-Nazism would say. Now, if you're a neo-Nazi, I would encourage you to go back and examine the evidence, specifically if Jesus was raised from the dead or not. Because if he wasn't raised from the dead, then maybe you're right. Maybe the whole thing is a big farce, and we're just out to control you all. But if Yeshua was, in fact, raised from the dead, then he was who he claimed to be, and he is coming back, and you have some stuff to deal with. Because Yeshua said very clearly which scriptures are true, and that's the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament written by his apostles, and he stated very clearly who the real God is and what a correct worldview is. And he also stated very clearly that God is friends with Israel. So if you're a neo-Nazi and you're not friends with Israel, if there's a creator, and if the king is coming back, you're on the wrong side, and just like Hitler and the neo-Nazis were wiped out, uh, the Nazis were wiped out the first time, you may be wiped out the second time. So if you're a neo-Nazi, I would strongly encourage you, look at the evidence for Yeshua being raised from the dead. All of his apostles laid down their lives horrifically in the midst of torture because they said, Yeshua is alive from the dead, and I will die because this is what he sent me to preach. Um, the movement that he started went viral. 
it flipped the Roman world within three centuries. It was supernatural. People died in the millions for their testimony of Yeshua. There are even Orthodox Jewish theologians like Pinchas of the Pied who have examined the evidence and who have come to believe that the resurrection was in fact a historical fact. Just based on the evidence. All right? um, if, this is what democracy would often say. We live in a democratic society and I really, I'm really thankful for that. It works because we have a, a, a semi-righteous foundations. This is what democracy sometimes says though. This is the attitude that we sometimes have as people in a democracy. We don't have to listen to Yeshua. He's one of many candidates and we can vote him out if we don't like his policies. The truth is Yeshua was appointed by God and that's the only vote that counts. If God votes for you, then you're in office. And Yeshua is in office for the long term. He doesn't have a four-year tenure. Yeshua also has unlimited authority. He is not bound by, uh, let's say, an accountability to the majority of the people in the world who can give him a thumbs down and vote him out if they want to. He's not accountable to anyone but the Father. And thankfully, he has a track record of being very benevolent, exceptionally loving, totally just. He's the best thing that would ever happen to a country in terms of um, being a king or a prime minister. Uh, Yeshua is the one person that truly holds the divine right of kingship. Are you familiar with that concept? The divine right of kingship. It's, it's a sto- historical concept that some, some monarchs have held to that basically says, if you're the king, then God appointed you as the king and you can do whatever you want and you're not accountable to anybody. And that's not true of any human being except for Yeshua. He does hold the divine right of kingship. As a democratic person, you, you do have free choice. You do have free will. You don't have to obey, you don't have to obey Yeshua. I want to underscore that. But it will cost you your life, and it will cost you your eternal happiness. So, you know, use your freedom wisely. Make the right choice. Uh, what's, the American, what's the American dream? Basically, the pursuit of happiness, to be happy, right? I mean, eternal happiness would be even better. Basically, not voting for Yeshua in terms of how you do life is the equivalent of the American nightmare, the opposite of the American dream. If you want to be really miserable forever, just give them your thumbs down. Um, Islam would say, Muhammad is the true prophet, the true anointed one. The answer to that is simply, Yeshua is the anointed prophet, and you need to go back and study what he said. You need to seriously consider his teachings and see if they square with Muhammad, because you may have to choose between the two. Maybe Isa isn't really a Muslim. Maybe he's not coming back to Islamicize the planet. Read your history, and it very strongly suggests this idea. The writings of Yeshua's apostles declare that he is the prophet, like Moses, and he must be listened to. The only way you're going to be able to learn what he said is by reading the writings of his apostles, the New Testament. If you are a Muslim, then you will say, well, they've been messed with. They've been corrupted over time. No, they haven't. There are tens of thousands of scraps of New Testament documents from as early as the 100s, and they all agree with each other, and they say very clearly that the New Testament hasn't been tampered with. Right? So if you're, if you're a Muslim, I strongly encourage you to go and read the New Testament and consider the possibility that it is a historically verifiable document. Um, Islam also says that directly before the Day of Judgment, the, uh, the Muhdi, 
or uh, you, you, you may read that as Mahdi, will be battling the false Messiah, who's called the Messiah Ad-Dajjal in Arabic. And Isa, or Jesus, he will descend as a Muslim. He will kill the false Messiah. He'll convert all the Christians and Jews to Islam. And then he'll die about 40 years later. That's what Islam has to say about Yeshua the King. Yeah, he's going to come back and he's going to help the Muhdi kill the false Messiah. He's going to convert all the Jews and Christians to Islam and then he's going to die about 40 years later. There, there are a lot of things about this worldview that are extremely inconsistent. I'll just give you one. The concept of Yeshua dying 40 years later. Okay, where is he right now? According to Islamic theology, Yeshua is in heaven. How do you think he survives in heaven? How do you think he managed to hurtle through the skies and through space without dying? Like, he must be supernaturally preserved. Maybe he's even immortal. The New Testament states very clearly that Yeshua has been raised from the dead, that he is immortal, and that when he comes back, he's not going to expire 40 years later. He's around forever. He is the eternal king. So if you follow Islam, I encourage you again, re-examine your theology and also just the rationale of Jesus floating around in heaven for almost two millennia and then coming back and dying 40 years later. I'm sorry, that's really inconsistent. Um, Anti-missionaries. Jewish people who don't believe in Yeshua and who who have dedicated their lives to combating the gospel. They would say, Yeshua wasn't physically descended from David because, you know, God was his father according to the gospel. So even even if that so he wasn't from David's seed or sperma as the Greek reads and therefore because Yeshua wasn't literally descended from David he isn't a legitimate candidate for kingship over Israel. Do you understand that line of reasoning? Do you know what they're saying? Okay, he wasn't literally David's seed, so he can't be a candidate for kingship. Uh, it, therefore, he can't be the Messiah, the king. I'll give you two answers to that. Uh, number one, in Jewish law, if you are adopted, you're legally a son and you are to be treated as a, a son with full rights. That means even if Yeshua didn't descend on his paternal lineage directly from David because he was fathered by the creator of the universe himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, he can still be the king because he was fully legally adopted by Joseph, and Joseph was the son of David. He had a very clearly marked pedigree all the way back to King David. All right? Secondly, on Yeshua's mother's side, who is also a descendant of David, he was literally descended from David. So even if it wasn't from his dad's side literally, he was adopted, and his mom was descended from David. So he did physically descend from David through the seed of the woman, which is a prime theme in the early chapters of Genesis in the Proto-Evangelion. Okay, Roman Catholicism says that Jesus is indeed the king. Yay, good, good there and that the Catholic Church is, is, is Jesus' king, kingdom on earth. So the Catholic Church is the kingdom of Jesus on earth. If you're in the Catholic Church, you are in Jesus' kingship. If you're a member of the Catholic Church, you are a member of his king, kingdom. And uh, it's very quantifiable. You can see where Jesus' kingdom is by seeing um, how far the Catholic Church has spread. I'll give you an example. Pius XI, in the 1800s, issued an encyclical called Quas Primus, and I probably butchered that Latin, but I'm not a Latin scholar, I'm sorry, that claimed this, quote, the Catholic Church is the kingdom of Christ on earth. All right? Now, I I do want to underscore, the Catholic Church has gone some pretty significant ideological changes since Vatican II, and I, I really appreciate that. You know, as a Jewish person, I really appreciate 
um, some of the moves that the popes have made towards uh, validating Israel, towards recognizing the, the ongoing legitimacy of the Jewish people, toward supporting scholarship, supporting the Jewishness of Jesus. It's, it's, it's a real blessing to see that. So there have been some changes. Some Catholics no longer believe that the Catholic Church is Jesus' kingdom on earth. But I think I would probably say the majority of Catholics do believe that, and hardcore Catholics definitely do. Okay? Here, here is an answer to Roman Catholics who believe that the Catholic Church is Jesus' kingdom on earth. Um, Luke chapter 17, verse 20. I can't remember if I have this up. Let's have a look. You know what? I don't have this one. I'll just read it to you. Sorry. Um, it says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God isn't coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For look, the kingdom of God is already in your midst. So did you get that? Yeshua taught very clearly that his kingdom isn't outwardly quantifiable. You can't just point to an organization. Like for instance, Jehovah's Witnesses will point to an organization and say, the Watchtower Society is the heaven, God's heavenly organization. It's very obvious who's in and who isn't in. All right? Um, similarly, Catholicism would suggest something similar, only about themselves and not about the Watchtower Society. What Yeshua is saying here is you're not going to be able to say, oh, look, here it is. Look, there it is. Why? Because it's in the heart. It starts with individual human hearts, and it goes from the inside out. You could say Yeshua's kingdom is a grassroots kingdom. If you, if you study the history of grassroots movements, Yeshua's kingdom is totally grassroots. It starts with individuals. It works from the inside out. It transforms families. And eventually, we flip societies right side up. That's the idea. Uh, you remember in the book of Acts, there was this one city they were having a... They were freaking out. There was a total riot. And the reason was, a couple of guys had come to town and they had this revolutionary idea that Caesar wasn't the real king. That Yeshua was the real king. They said, these guys are preaching another king. Yeah. That's the idea. Um, one more passage about that, answering uh, Catholic ideology. John chapter 18, verse 36, Yeshua says this to, uh, I think it's to, to Herod, my kingdom, no, Pilate, sorry, my kingdom isn't of this world. Everybody say, not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews or Judeans. But as it is, my kingdom isn't from here. Everybody say, isn't from here. All right. Um, historically, the, the modus operandi of the Catholic Church has been to fight people who disagree with it, to kill them, and to act as if Jesus' kingdom were of this world. And Yeshua states very clearly, au contraire. So, you know, if somebody's constantly fighting, especially on a physical level, using force to implement their theology, just write them off right there. And historically speaking, the Roman Catholic Church has done an excellent job writing itself off and invalidating itself in its claims to be Jesus' kingdom on earth just in terms of the number of people it has murdered because they dared to disagree with it and do things like teach their children to pray the Lord's Prayer in English. True story, 1500s. Um, I'll give you one more answer to that. Um, Catholic theology is based on the core concept that the popes are descended from Peter. Peter was the first pope, 
says he was married and have kids. I guess he was a bad pope. And uh, since then, there was papal succession. Okay? The doctrine of papal succession is at the core of Catholic theology. And um, I suggest to you that if someone was truly descended from Peter and was the visible representative of Christ on earth, was the Vicarus Filii Dei, is the Latin term for that, then he would probably live a life of integrity. He would probably be sexually pure. He would probably not be a corrupt person. If you read the history of popes in the Catholic Church, it is a gong show. It is an absolute farce. I'm sorry, like I have respect for some of the popes that have been noble men, men of integrity, that have loved God. But okay, listen, just, there, there are several books out there on the sexual history of the popes homosexual popes, quite a few popes who had quite a few children before they became popes, when they were priests, popes who were sexually active when they were popes. Um, 1400s and 1500s especially, it was, it was a circus. Okay, There was a reason that the Protestant Reformation happened. There was a reason that the European nations rose up and said, this is stupid. This guy is not representing Christ. He's unrighteous. And they called it what it was, okay? So, you know, I, I, I know Catholics who are devout, who love Jesus, who read the Bible, and, and they're my friends. I love them. I really do. And I'm not going to say whether they're in God's kingdom or not, because that's not my business. But in terms of history, and in terms of ideology, no, history and biblical theology state very clearly that the Roman Catholic Church is not Jesus' kingdom on earth. I'll give you one more of those. And, yeah, actually, I'll just give you, I'll give you the last one of these right now. Um, Finally, um, a little closer to home. Um, generally, the, the, the evangelical world is an extension of the Protestant world. So much of evangelical theology is founded on Reformed theology from the 1500s. Men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, uh, several of the main denominations are based on these guys' teachings, right? And you know what? They had a lot of stuff right. They were valiant men in their time. They, they taught the Bible as best as they could. They faced danger of death. Some of them did die for their testimony. So they are heroes in the body of Messiah, and that's to be honored. At the same time, because they were human beings, they didn't have everything right. Because Yeshua is still in the process of restoring his people, maybe they didn't have the biggest picture. I'll give you one, one example of that in my understanding. Um, often Reformed theologians... They definitely had it right that Jesus is the king and he is to be worshipped. He is to be acknowledged as the Christ and uh, his gospel is to be responded to by faith. Excellent. Sometimes though, in terms of the practical outworking of that, there's kind of this massive silence. There's a lot of dead air. For instance, who is Jesus king over? What geographical area is he king over? We're going we're to talk about that next week. There's this title that he has in, in, in Matthew, the king of the, the Jews. Uh, generally, the relevancy of the Jewish people and Jewish anything has been overlooked in Reformed theology. Um, some Reformed theologians would agree Christ is returning with the majority of the early church fathers and is instituting the kingdom of God on planet Earth for a solid thousand years. However, when it comes to some of the details of that, in Reformed theology, there hasn't been a lot of time spent working that out. For instance, uh, which, which area is Jesus going to be uh, king in? 
Uh, which city is he going to be ruling from? What's his capital going to be? Um, which nation is going to be surrounding him during that thousand-year period of time? What's that going to look like? What are people going to be doing? What are the biblical holidays and festivals people are going to be doing? It's like a lot of those details get very little airtime in Reformed theology. I, I think if in, 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 in Reformed theology we were to spend more time looking at some of those details, it would be really good. So... I'll I'll leave you with this thought in terms of why the doctrine of Jesus as king is really important. I just answered some objections. I'll tell you what's why important. Two reasons. Number one, if Yeshua is a king, he's a heroic and valiant king. And he actually deserves our allegiance and our affections. Like seriously, if Yeshua is the king, you could be caught up in a great... You could be caught up in a great adventure as his staunch supporter. Okay, think about this. This is my favorite story. You know, we talked about how David, when he was a fugitive and he was on the run, and he had thugs who were going out to him and joining his cause, and they were running around in the desert and fighting Philistines and eking out an existence. You know, if you're a survivalist, you would have loved it, basically. And here's the thing. There was a point when he was unpopular and people defected to him, but eventually he ascended the throne. Eventually he became the king over Israel. And his inner circle, they were in with him. They had access to the king. They were close personal friends with the king. He'd have them over for a drink and they'd reminisce about the days when they were on the run together. And you know what? Where David was in the wilderness, Yeshua is today. He is a fugitive. He is not very popular either with the people of Israel or with the majority of people on planet Earth. And if you want to follow Yeshua, you need to walk away from the majority. You will have to defect to a certain degree from your society. You will have to go to the wilderness and become something of a survivalist. And it's going to be tough. And it's going to make you tough. But you know what? Yeshua is coming back and he will ascend the throne. And it will be great to be in his inner circle. It'll be great to be like, come over to my palace. You know? When the, like in the kingdom, when there are like hundreds of millions of people on the earth, wouldn't it be great for him to call you up and be like, you know, I'm just having a get-together with some of my closest friends. I want you to come over, have a drink. Let's just reminisce about the good old days when I was on the run and the stuff that you sacrificed for me. Can, like, can you imagine? That's the idea. That is why it's important to crown Yeshua as your king and to follow him wholeheartedly. And here's the second reason. If you want to back it up to that verse, Yeshua told a story in Luke chapter 19 Think about, think about the ramifications of this, okay? Very politically incorrect. Um, this is what he said. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Okay, we all know that part, right? This story of the talents. We, we, we talk about that part all the time. Here's the other part of the story. But his citizens hated him. They hated this guy's guts. They really didn't like him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we actually don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they'd done. That's the part we all know about, right? Great job, you invested my money, you doubled my money, enter into the joy of your master. Okay, that was just a couple guys. Do you know what happened to most of those people? They said, we don't like this guy, we don't like his policies, and we don't want him to be king. Yeshua finishes this story. These enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So get this. That's a picture of when Yeshua comes back. He's going to have servants. It's going to be really happy. He's also going to have a majority of the world's citizens who didn't like him 
and who gave him a thumbs down and who didn't follow him as king. And for them, he will say, these people are my enemies. They didn't want me to reign over them. Bring them right here in front of me and kill them with me watching. Um, Throw them into a place of torture. So you know, whether you're a Christian or Jewish or Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic, Yeshua demands that you decide who you're going to give your allegiance to. And guess what? If you don't decide for him, and if your life doesn't show it, you are his enemy. There's no sitting on the fence. There will be Christians in hell. There will be Messianic people in hell. Because they said, yeah, Jesus is the Christ, Yeshua is the Mashiach. But their lives didn't show that they were following him as the king. So you know what? Maybe some of you in this room find that offensive. Maybe our culture finds it offensive that when Jesus comes back, he is going to personally oversee the execution of everybody who rejected his kingship and who didn't want him to reign. People would say, well, that offends me. Maybe God would say, well, you offend me because you're rebellious and you're living for yourself. And it's time to turn around and either accept my rule or get ready to be in a place of torture. That's, that's the world that's coming. And if people don't like that, that's the way it is. Uh, when you're the creator of the universe, you get to call the shots, and you're always right. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.